page 1243, starting at verse 1. Let's read together the word of Almighty God, inspired by his Spirit, profitable for us. Revelation 11. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that, in, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a an half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because of these two prophets tormented them, or because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth." And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the, 20, the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, 
and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. Thus far the reading of God's inspired word from Revelation chapter 11. Here in this chapter, we have the ongoing exposition of what happened in chapter 10. Do you recall? The little book opened up in the hand of the mediator Christ, who swore that time should be no more. He promised that his dominions would be spread from sea to land, that he who ruled over all things was now about to bring the mystery to a conclusion, the mystery of the gospel of Christ and his church, the mystery of iniquity of whore Babylon being destroyed, the mystery of that final resurrection and fulfillment of all the promises made to the patriarchs and to the people of God through his holy prophets. Here we come toward the end of this mystery, toward the final age and saga of the mystery of God. Notice here, first in verses 1 and 2, we have the sacred measures and the court of the Gentiles. John is handed a reed like unto a rod. This is very unusual. A reed would be a light piece of material used to measure out the distances between one thing and another. How long is this building? Well, let's measure it. We have reeds. How many do we have that stack up and how many cubits does that make? That's what it is. But notice he also says it was like unto a rod. Now rods are used, as we saw with Jonathan, the king's son, as an instrument to demonstrate their rule, as a king's rule, in other words. Christ is said to have a rod that will proceed out of his mouth. And in chapter 2 we saw that he would break his adversaries in shivers with what? A rod. Christ has the rod, we sang in Psalm 2, verse 9, to crush his adversaries, to rule his inheritance, as we see there in Psalm 2, verse 8, concerning the inheritance of Christ, his dominion over all nations, and his ruling them with a rod of iron, in verse 10. So then, when this rod is brought forth, it's no ordinary rod. It is the king's measure, the king's standard. The king is coming to measure what? What does the Lord Jesus tell him to rise and measure? First, the temple of God. Christ demands that John use the kingly rod, namely the statutes and measures of the king, to measure his worship that happens where? In the temple. The place of the government of Jesus Christ's kingdom. Come down and measure this temple and find for me whether it's conformable to my rule, in other words. 
Am I the king who rules here? Or is there some other king who professes to have supremacy here and does not use my rule? That's the question. Measure the temple of God. Now the man of sin, where would he exalt himself? In the temple of God, professing himself to be God. So Christ is going to displace and remeasure his own house. John Trapp comments, The church had been so woefully wasted and oppressed by Antichrist that it stood in need of new measuring and repairing. Now again, I've told you this before, but in the Old Testament you have the types of Christ and Antichrist. The kings of Judah were the types of Christ in many instances, and the kingdom of the north was always anti-Christian. They have no good kings. You can read it yourself in First and Second Kings. No good kings in the northern kingdom. All are anti-Christian. But those in the south, often what, they, what would they do? They would build the house of God. They would measure it out and figure out what it needed and repair it and say, here is the book of the law. Here is the measuring rod of the king. It, is this applicable? Are they obeying what the king has demanded in his statute book, the word of God? Notice, moreover, the altar and them that worship within the temple. Measure them too. The worship of God, the sacrifice of Christ, the Christ whom we preach, the people who worship, how do we measure them? By king's rule. The King Jesus, his statutes, his little book that he handed to John and said, consume this and preach it. Now he's preaching that little book. The king rules over his house. The king will measure them that worship there and the altar and worship that is offered. Even amidst the reign of Antichrist, there were true worshipers of God according to the rule of Jesus Christ. And the rest, what does he say about them? Out. Get out. You Gentiles, remember Wormwood. What was he? He's an inhabitor of the earth. He fell from heaven and fell down and is groveling on the earth. Then later we find him as Apollyon with the keys of the abyss. And we saw in this chapter, he comes forth out of the abyss now. Gentiles pushed out. And this, again, is just during or after the rise of Wormwood, that is the fifth of the... Uh, or the first of the woes, the fifth of the trumpets. Apollyon is the sixth. That's when all this is occurring, during this period of time. The swarms of the Eastern and Western Antichrist, the harassing and death of God's people, the mystery of God is promised to begin to take shape, and here it is. This is the beginning of the mystery taking shape so that all things will come to completion. First, Remeasure the house of God. That's what he's saying. You have the book. You've eaten the book, John. Now you must prophesy to many nations and kingdoms and people. And here's how it happens. Start by measuring the house. Start by measuring the temple. Start by measuring the altar. Start by measuring them that worship there. Here, the re-establishment of the edicts of the king, of his oracles, of his divine rule, king's rule. 
And we call this time the morning star or the progress of the Reformation. The king's rule reasserted. Wormwood's power begins to roll back with much conflict to follow as we shall see. Let us never lose heart. The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ marches on. We have a standard, we have a rule, we have an open book, and we have an authoritative priest, Jesus Christ, the prophet and king, who stands ruling over the seas and the earth, who has told us, here is the word, here is the standard, here is the rule. The Antichrist may boast otherwise, but if they walk not according to this rule, it is because there is no light in them. So he says, verse 2, But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not. If they will not be ruled by king's rule, kick them out. They're Gentiles. They don't belong in here. They're not a holy people. They're dogs. They're unclean. They're inhabitants of the earth, foul spirits, boasting themselves as Jews, like the ancient Jews did, following the traditions of their elders, their fathers, their councils, rather than one thing, king's rule. Anathema be those who follow the king's rule. That's what the Gentiles say. Cursed be everyone who doesn't follow our holy traditions and worship graven images. You know, that's what they said in the seventh so-called ecumenical council. You are cursed if you don't worship these graven images. That's what they said. Now, of interest and of irony is that the law of the Christian emperors of Rome, namely the Justinian Code, says that if you make an image of Jesus, we're going to heavily penalize you. And you know the same people who said, you're cursed if you don't worship images of Jesus? They actually would worship Justinian. They had a sacred day to honor Justinian and to worship him who published the law that says, you will be fined if you violate this and make a picture of Jesus. In fact, the law goes on and says, if you see someone carve it in sand, scrape it out. We have a celestial savior, a heavenly savior, Jesus Christ. We're not heathens. And so what are they saying? Be a heathen or you're cursed. They're put without. They're not measured by the rod of the king. They're removed from the holy temple of God. They will not be ruled by Christ's word, so they are outside, not measured. And what will they do to the holy city? They will tread it underfoot. Blasphemy and idolatry and they will say, but we are the holy people. This is the city here. Outside of us, no life for you. You're cut off from God. Well, what about the rod? What, oh, forget the king's rod. We rule here. That's what they're saying. We don't need the king to rule over us. We don't need his laws. We don't need his book. We don't need his authority. It is blasphemy. It's treading what is holy as if it's under your dominion. Now this happens for 40 and 2 months, 1,260 days, as it is also named in verse 3. Now this is a possible allusion to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 25, where Daniel mentions a time, times, and half a time, which equals approximately 
1,260 days, one time being a year, two being two years, and a half a time being a half a year, gets you approximately to 1,260. It certainly gets you to 42 months. A full cycle of sixes, you'll notice. And then you have the numbers of creation. 12 months, 6 plus 6, 24 months, 4 more, that's 6 sixes. Then 6 months more gets you 7 sixes. Now remember, when you have the number 6, it's almost done, isn't it? What does it take? The 7th makes it complete. The 6 is incomplete. It has a complete incompletion, you might say. The Antichrist's dominion trampling under the holy city is going to be a very long time, but it has an end. There will be an end. His kingdom is doomed in time. So then, the two witnesses come forth. The war is made against them. They are put to death. They rise again, ascend, and have the victory. Here, John was told he would prophesy, but here's how it's fulfilled. Two witnesses, verse 3. I will give power unto my two witnesses. I will confirm their words, in other words. Though there are few, remember when the Apollyonic powers came forth from the abyss, how many were there? Just two? Oh, there were plenty of those. Millions and millions of those unclean beasts. How many witnesses? Two. That's all it takes. Just two. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. This is the same period while the Antichrist shall be excluded from the holy place, not measured by God's restored temple, not there with the altar and true worshipers, these prophets will come forth and prophesy the same period of time as the Antichrist is excluded from the temple of God. The 40 and 2 months is 1,260 days as here. And notice they prophesy in sackcloth, calling to repentance, calling the people to turn from their sins. These two are called the olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now an olive tree does what? It produces fruit. It produces olives, which produces olive oil, which causes the candlestick to burn. They have both the source of the oil and they shine forth the word of light, these two witnesses. They produce the oil. They burn with the oil. These are the means of grace pouring out the Spirit of God by the preaching of God's Word. Jesus said that he would consume away the man of sin with what? The breath of his mouth. And here it is. They preach the Word. They shine the light, as we saw in Zechariah 4. These two before the God of all the earth, ministering in the Lord's temple, the church of Jesus Christ, the fatness of God's house, the light of the world. That's what's shining through these men. Would you be anointed by God? Would you partake of the fatness of his house? How do we receive the light of the world? God has witnesses. Christ has sent them forth. He's given them his word, his little book. He said, be ministers of my word. Shine the light. 
as the light of the world. You don't hide it. You put it up and you declare it as this book was open in the hands of Christ. Make diligent use and improvement of the means of grace. The faithful declaration of the king's rule. Measure yourself, them that worship. Measure the Christ you believe in, the altar. Measure the house that you worship in and your worship, the temple. By what? By king's rule. By the rule of Jesus Christ. By his mystery. By his light. And notice, they are indestructible. They cannot be silenced. They cannot be killed. And if any man will hurt them, verse 5, fire proceedeth out of their mouth. Do you remember what God said through Jeremiah? My word is like a hammer, declareth the Lord, and like a fire, he said. Why? Because it burns up the stubble of lies and error. When these men are opposed, they can preach the word and destroy all before them. Adversaries might slay these witnesses, but they cannot overcome the words of their mouth. They cannot overcome the word of God, the king's rule. They have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Supernatural power, fervent, effectual prayers, cursing the adversaries, those who oppose them, who exalt themselves, even as who? Ahab, remember? Who was it that prayed so that there would be no rain? It was who? Elijah. And who was the king? The false king of the north tribes, right? You have the true and lawful line of David down in Jerusalem. What do you have in the north? The Antichrist, Ahab, his false kingdom. And so here, just like in that picture, in that type of the Antichrist, so these who speak against him have power to shut heaven, just like Elijah did. They can speak and pray, and God will hear their prayers. What else do they have power? They can turn water into blood. Well, who did that? Moses did, the prophet of God. Moses and Elijah, he's referring to here. Moses, the faithful witness of God's house, bringing down those high and lofty thoughts of Pharaoh, he who opposed the worship of God, who opposed the kingdom of God, what did he do? He cursed him. So these witnesses will curse all who oppose them. They have power to turn water to blood, to shut the heavens that they reign not in the days of their prophecy. And when they shall have finished their testimony, or literally, right as they're about to finish their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them. Wait, 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 who is this? He used to be what? A star in the heavens. Then he fell to become wormwood. Then eventually he's no longer wormwood, he's Apollyon, He's the destroyer who can unlock the, sh the powers of hell of the abyss. Now where is he? Now he lives down in hell and he belches forth and comes as a beast out of hell itself. This is the fall and the descent of the man of sin. What does he do? When he hears the word preached, what is his response? I must destroy these men. I must stamp them out. I must ruin them because they trouble me, my kingdom, and my subjects. He shall overcome them, verse 7, and kill them. 
with some mystic or ecclesiastical death. His beastly nature demands it. He's provoked by the mystery of the gospel preached. He does not want the rule of Christ over him. They slay them, and what do they do? Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. Now, some would like to make this into Jerusalem, and with good reason, perhaps. It says our Lord was crucified there, but was Christ actually crucified in Jerusalem? No, he wasn't. He was removed from the precincts of the city of Jerusalem, put out of the city, and there he suffered at Golgotha. He did not suffer in Jerusalem. Furthermore, is Jerusalem that great city? If you lived in the days of John and you said, the great city, what would you be talking about? Rome. If you lived in the times of the captivity and you said that great city, what would you be talking about? Babylon. And the two are used interchangeably in the ancient world. Rome is Babylon, Babylon is Rome. Why? Because the kingdom succeeded from the Babylonians to at the time of Christ, the Romans themselves. That great city is none other than Rome itself. The great city is no trifling little Jewish city called Jerusalem. And Christ, again, was not crucified in the city of Jerusalem, much less in one of its streets. He was pushed out by the world system, the wicked and lawless system of the Jews, that anti-Christian system that they had before it was perfected in the Christian church. The great city of the ancient world, spiritually and mystically called Babylon in chapters 14 and 18, this was Rome. Slain in the open, these two witnesses are. That worldly city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Sodom for uncleanness and perversity, idolatry and unnatural lusts. Egypt for oppressing the people of God. None of this is literal. It's not literally Sodom and Egypt. It's spiritually so. This world system. This Godless, wicked, God-forsaken system crucified the Savior himself. In fact, do you know how our Lord was crucified? Well, he was crucified in the Roman manner, was he not? Was he stoned? No. He was killed by a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate by Roman soldiers on a Roman cross. This is where our Lord was crucified in the precincts of Rome. Now look, they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations, they will see their dead bodies. It's public, it's open, it's a metropolitan viewing. Everybody in the world, in the great cities, sees it. They sit there three days and a half, a short period, though indefinite. And they did not suffer their bodies to be put in graves. No human honors showed to these prophets. And everybody's happy. They have a little Christmas party. Did you notice that? They make merry. They give gifts. Oh, great. We're finally done with these two prophets. They tormented us. All of us who dwell on the earth. All of us worldly-minded men who are fallen from the heavens, who grovel on the earth. We're so glad they're gone. Let us not be of their number. 
lest we partake of their plagues, they despised the preaching of God's word. But God had the victory after three and a half days. The spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet. They will be raised to newness of life, though the victory of Antichrist seems to be sure. And his devotees rejoice in imitation of their Savior. They too will rise again. Then, after their resurrection, note, the tenth part of the city fell. Remember that great city. What happened to it? Its power is broken. It is decimated, one-tenth destroyed. And in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000. Now remember, the number seven is that complete number. Ten times ten times ten is a thousand. That times seven is 7,000. In other words, this full judgment of God coming down upon them, God being the number three represented in Revelation 10, the number of fullness, God's full wrath poured out on his adversaries, in other words. And the remnant, those left in that city, they gave glory to God. They recognized that the judgment was right that they deserved to be punished. And rather than glorify creatures, whether angels or saints or fathers or popes, when God visits this judgment, the remnant will no longer glorify the creature. Who will they glorify? The God of heaven himself. The second woe is past now, verse 14 tells us. In other words, all of chapter 10 all the way up through this point in chapter 11 is all comprehended in that second woe or that sixth trumpet. Now the execution of the second general prophecy, part three, trumpet number seven or woe number three, the Lord Christ begins to reign. Verse 15 tells us so much. The, the seventh angel sounded. In other words, the third woe. Then it says that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. No longer devoted to that once great, now beastly creature, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the only head of his church, he will be served by them now. Remember, all these kingdoms used to serve the Antichrist. They all used to follow his wicked ways. Now they're turning to Christ himself. He shall reign forever and ever. This is the unfolding of the mystery. After the seventh seal, after the toppling of Rome, but before the pouring out of all those vials in that final battle, there will be an inauguration of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, sweeping the kingdoms of this world from the bondage of Antichrist to the glorious kingdom of Jesus. The Antichrist shall not win in history. He shall die. He shall be ruined. He shall be cast down. And Jesus himself shall reign. The heathen Rome opposed and murdered the saints. The heretics blotched the pure doctrine of the gospel. The Turks despised and raged and had fury against the kingdom. Wormwood befouled the heavenly waters. Apollyon brought forth smoke and belched against the sun. The beast murders Christ's prophets, but Christ shall reign. 
Let us pray, thy kingdom come. Let us work toward that very end. Let us worship, work, and believe. How? By the king's reed, by his rod, by his rule, by his measure, by his little book. Then notice, the elders fell upon their faces and worshipped God. And then there is a cry, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come. These 200 millions of Turks, you mean you can overcome them in a moment? Yes, he's almighty. He has all power. He can do as he pleases. Thy wrath is come, verse 18 says, and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints. This final battle is yet to come. But this ruin of Rome presages this final judgment, the fulfilling of the mystery of God, which John was given in chapter 10. The beginning of the end has occurred. All now races toward the finish line. That's what it meant when he swore that there would be time no more. There's nothing after this age. This is it. And so here we have it inaugurated. We have it kicked off. And what do we see? We see the ark and the temple, the ark of his testament. Remember how the Lord swore in chapter 10, verses 6 and 7? You know what they do when they swear? They make an oath or a testament. And what is there in heaven is the ark of that testament, the sacred depository for God's promise, his testament. The blood of Christ sprinkled upon the ark the law of Christ, the rod of Aaron that blossomed, that rod by which the church and temple are measured, it's there in the ark as well. The golden pot of manna by which the hidden manna was fed to the people of God, the servants of the Lord, where is that? It's here. We're seeing it. It's opening up before our eyes. And what about the adversaries? What shall happen to them? Lightning, voices, thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Here's the call to the enemies. You shall be destroyed. I will thunder upon you. My testament shall be fulfilled and all your anti-Christian blasphemy will be put to an end. And thus far the exposition of Revelation chapter 11.